Did you know that according to research, 40% of people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime? An even higher amount of people know someone who has fought through cancer. And while we are not a cancer podcast, cancer touches us all. Not only this, but there is a strong similarity of those with cancer and those of us with chronic health problems, especially chronic gut health problems. There's this question of, can I get better? Why me? Can I be happy with my body and my life, even with how my body and health currently is? And with my body and health the way it is now, what does life look like for me? Dr. Anderson is a guest on our podcast today, and he has a new book out called Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. I read it and I really felt it talked to me as someone with a history of chronic pain and gut health problems. And so even though the book is focused on cancer and I think will be wildly and, and deeply meaningful for those of you who are listening who have fought with cancer or know someone currently or in the past who has fought through cancer, I also wanted Dr. Anderson onto the podcast today because what he is talking about today with the emotional health and well-being of having a chronic illness applies to us all, whether it's cancer or Crohn's or IBS. Dr. Anderson has so many credentials to be on the podcast today. He is a doctor of naturopathic medicine and is a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex infectious chronic and oncologic oncologic diseases. In addition to three decades of clinical experience, he was also the head of the interventional arm of the U.S. National Institute of Health funded human research trial using IV and integrative therapies in cancer patients. How cool is that? Dr. Anderson founded the Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, which is a clinic focusing on cancer and chronic diseases, and he now focuses his time in collaboration with clinics and hospitals in the U.S. and other countries. He's has former positions, including multiple medical school posts, the professor of pharmacology and clinical medicine at Bastyr University, and he was the chief of IV services for Bastyr's Oncology Research Center. He is the co-author of the book Outside the Box Cancer Therapies, which we talk and mention a little bit in today's episode, and he is the co-author with Jack Canfield of the anthology Success Breakthroughs. And today we are going to be talking about his new book, which he fully authored himself, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. I am so excited to have Dr. Paul Anderson on today's episode, and I hope that you also are excited and take away some really great nuggets from our conversation today. Are you guys ready? Let's jump in. Welcome to the Better Belly Podcast, where we find freedom from food restrictions, we increase energy in our lives, and we begin to feel more healthy and vibrant than ever by finding the root causes of our health problems. My name is Allison Jordan. I'm a marathon runner, functional medicine, health coach, certified craniosacral therapist, gut health nerd, lover of Jesus, and owner of Better Belly Therapies, a clinic based in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that works with both virtual and local clinics clients to help them achieve the best health of their life. I am here to walk with you on your journey to a better belly and a better life. 
we're gonna go beyond popping a probiotic and just checking out our poop. In this show, we are going to go deep into gut transformation strategies that last for your entire life. If you are ready to feel your best, get ready to roll. You are in the right place. And just as a reminder, this information is not meant to diagnose, manage, or treat disease. Always consult with your own health practitioner before you make any changes to your health. Awesome. So Dr. Anderson, it is, I'm so honored to have you on the podcast today. Um, you are a really big fish in my mind. And from what I've seen in all the education and background that you have, you're a big fish in this pond of medicine and, and pursuing health against all odds, really. And so thank you so much for joining on the, us on the podcast today. Well, thanks for having me. So before we dive in, I just wanted to share about how we actually got connected because it's kind of funny and, or at least it's cool in my mind. And I got permission to share this. Um, but the way we got connected is that your wife was actually one of my clients and she's a wonderful lady. And I figured out very quickly in our work together that she was very educated on, on health things. And I remember kind of thinking, you know, this is so interesting. She knows so much and she's very humble and very much like, Hey, I just want to get better. Can you guide me? And I mean, just really wonderful. And along the way she started sharing, well, my husband looked at my lab that you ordered me or my husband did this. And I started understanding oh, wow, she's married to this incredibly smart, incredibly successful doctor who understands just a lot about kind of chronic illness and stuff. And you specialize and really get a lot of your energy, it seems from like complex cases and all this jazz. So um, you were a part of that. And at one point, close to our time working together, um, finishing working together, me and your wife, she's like, hey, my husband wrote a book and and she thought I'd be interested. And I read it and I thought it was wonderful. Um, the book is called Cancer, The Journey from diagnosis and to empowerment. And so I know that we're not normally a podcast that talks about cancer, but I just thought that it would be phenomenal to have people to have you on for a couple of reasons. One, almost everybody knows someone who gets cancer. I looked up some quick data. I don't know if you have any better data, but 40% of Americans are going to have cancer sometime in their life. That's, that's, is that, is that what, you know, about, about one and two. Yeah. One and two. Okay. Yeah. Maybe a little bit higher than what I found. Um, Probably it's getting more common. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the number is shifting every time we get a new swab of data. Right. Um, but, and then also on top of that, not only are we likely to get it one out of two at this point, we just are going to know someone. And so I wanted to ask you as our opening question, you know, you're joining us today because you recently published this book, which I'll say again, cancer, the journey from diagnosis to empowerment. But prior to this book, you also co-authored another book called outside the box cancer therapies, which is, sounds like an amazing book on its own. I actually really want to read it myself, but I'm really curious. Why did you write journey from diagnosis to empowerment? Well, yeah. Um, <clears throat> by the way, thanks for the intro and, uh, uh, thanks for all the work with Lori, my wife, uh, as most people know, it's usually best not to uh, try and doctor your own family too much. Uh, yes, <laughs> so that is very it's true. And helpful, helpful to have guidance. So that's great. Um, so outside the box was the first uh, book to the public that I had written. I've written a lot of things to professionals, and they're you know they're maybe well known to a small group of people, but not very much. 
So Dr. Mark Stengler and myself uh, are about the same era. We went to the same medical school and he and I had connected after 25 years of not seeing each other. And he came to a cancer conference I was teaching at. And he said, you know, this, all this stuff you did with NIH research and this other stuff, he says, we should really write a book and, and put it in there for the public instead of, you know, just doing it for other doctors. Yeah. Uh, so outside the box cancer therapies is just what it says, very therapy oriented. It's written so anyone can understand it. And our goal really was two things. One, educate people. But the other was to give people guidance because you, you get a diagnosis like cancer or any other chronic illness, and there's a million things that might be good. And so our goal was to kind of focus you on where should you put your resources? What kind of providers are good to see for what? Uh, what kind of things have we seen in our experience that work well? And maybe start with those things before you get you know too far out and spend money that maybe doesn't go anywhere. So at the end of that, which if anyone who's written a book knows it's a pretty arduous process, even with a co-author, um, about uh, in the year after the book came out, um, so there's a little bit of time for my brain to calm down. The doctors I was men mentoring, uh, I kept seeing this recurring theme come up where they're pretty good with, you know, therapeutic ideas and, and what to do and all of that. But the, the thing that we didn't get into a lot in this book about therapies outside the box was really more the, how does this hit your brain? How do you deal with this idea? You have this nasty diagnosis of cancer and what do you do with it to make you the healthiest person you can be? Because, you know, most people at least have an understanding that how we feel about our health, our illness or whatever does have an effect on the way our body works. And in cancer, it's, it's almost double. Um, so whether you are the caregiver, loved one or the patient, you get this big shock and I've, uh, what I essentially did in the book is there's a lot of how to like, okay, if you're stuck here, you know, these are some tips to move forward. But I also told the story of, of two patients. Now, obviously they're, you know, not real names and all that, but they are real people. And it's people who, who dealt with their diagnosis in two very different ways. One decided that they didn't want to be empowered. They didn't want to go anywhere with it other than just to be angry. And, and that's what happened. Um, and the other was very shocked, very angry, all the things you get, but really worked through it because her, the way she had lived her life really was she knew that, you know, bad things happen to us constantly because we're human, but how we deal with it matters. And it's really hard to go from getting the shock of someone telling you you have cancer to how do I come to peace with that? So, you know, fast forward to the end, the, um, the idea of empowerment is not simply just accepting and maybe giving up or, or whatever. It's, it's knowing that this is a reality, but I am also in control of my reality. And every day I get to live, I get to decide how, you know, how I'm yeah. do it. I actually, Let's fly. oh, sorry. 
Oh, no, that, that's so that's the short, long answer of why I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, no. And actually, so funny that you mentioned acceptance as one of your last comments here, because I actually have a quote from your book that I wrote down um, about acceptance. I just thought it was great. Um, and so you, you've written here, acceptance is not reg- resignation. The act of acceptance is embracing the reality of the journey. And I actually just wrote it. I just had a podcast episode unrelated to you and I talking called the health is a hero's journey, which I'm you know, rereading this and thinking about it. Um, the act of acceptance is embracing the reality of the journey of your health and all it encompasses while also knowing that you have control over your response to and interpretation of the process. Acceptance allows you to reset and move on to an empowered proactive and progressive state, uh, which you then say that you see associated with better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Just really interesting. Um, I, I mean, I literally wrote it down because I felt like I wanted to mull over it. Like there's, you have all these really key words. And a lot of times, you know, for our listeners of our podcast, and one of the reasons when I read that book, I said, I would love to have you on is because you know, and also in my health history, having some type of chronic ongoing pain and, and dysfunction. And for us, it's a lot of gut health dysfunction that when you go to your contemporary or contemporary <laughs> uh, conventional doctor, they do all the normal tests and they do endoscopies and colonoscopies. You feel like a little lab rat and then you get told everything's normal or you get told to take vitamin D or something and that's it. You, yeah. you just really want something better. And so it's really devalidating. And so, um, everything you have in your book is this sense of being diagnosed with something big or, or maybe even not knowing what to do with your diagnosis, just on a broad scheme of things and then how two people responded. So your two characters that you have, one is Gia and one is Bob. Uh, one of the interesting things that you added in there, I was, I was like, Oh, he knows what he's doing is is Bob is actually, he's the one who doesn't respond as well to his, his diagnosis, but he's a surgeon. And so he like knows a lot. Like he's like a classic, I don't know, somebody you think, Oh, they're the best type of person to get diagnosed with something like this. But then Gia responds in a totally different way. Can you tell us a little bit about how Gia responds compared to Bob? Yeah. Um, that was <clears throat> early meetings with the publisher. I was, just pitching different ideas of ways to get this across because it, the book could be not dry, but it could be very technical. You know, yeah. it could be very, okay. If you're at this stage do step one, two, three, which there is that stuff. And it's, it's a quick read. Um, but the idea of these, these people, because, you know, after three decades of dealing with people who have cancer, you, you remember all the stories, you know, and, and you see how people's pathways go. And it's not, you know, I want to be clear, it's not that you're going to not have cancer anymore if you're empowered and all this stuff. It's that that's a different question. It's that your your journey with it will be in your control as opposed to you being a victim of it. So um what really it comes down to is as you mentioned, so Bob is sort of the archetype of the ultimate I'm not, I don't care about being empowered. I don't care about anything. I have cancer. It's a deadly cancer and I'm angry and I want to stay angry. Okay. Now I I make the point in the book repeatedly that, uh, that I don't share, uh, his story with judgment because that's his body. He can do whatever he wants to with it. You know, it was very hard to watch, you know, and I've had other people like that. He was just sort of the, like, 
the level 10 version of this. Uh, it was very hard to watch, very hard to talk to him, you know, and, and, uh, and try and counsel him or, or whatever. But ultimately, we make our own decisions. So he really, like, it, it was the shortest trip from diagnosis to just being, you know, disappointed, angry, everything you can imagine, which are totally normal human emotions. But he decided that, you know, he was going to die from this. He knew a lot about the cancer. He knew a lot about the statistics of it. And he neither wanted to do anything to try and help his quality of life or his mental quality. So, so his sort of was a very rapid sort of trip down and, and he didn't last very long. He didn't really live long. Um, both, both in time, but also in his, his quality, like, like yeah. his, his quality yeah. of living was, it was very interesting. Um, yeah. And and to to affirm, the book was not dry. I was actually like, this is this is really good. So you did a really good job, and I do Thank you. recommend it. Thank you. It, there 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 are a lot of edits behind what you read there, so that's good. Um, <laughs> it, it is hard to go from writing uh, scientific things that are only read by you know PhDs and physicians to just public. So thankfully, the editors help you with that. So um, whereas, so Gia, on the other hand, uh, was this um, not named Gia, but a wonderful person uh, that I encountered. Bob was wonderful too, but she just sort of took it a different way. And she, to make no mistake, she felt like she was hit by a truck also immediately. Um, and I remember um, <clears throat> she had come in because my practice was always about half cancer and about half chronic illness, really advanced chronic illness. She was referred by somebody, she'd just been progressively getting more tired and more sick and all this. And that's a really common thing. And a lot of times those people, you know, they get diagnosed with say chronic fatigue or fibro or something like that. And so we would see a lot of those folks. Well, usually there's something underneath it or a lot of some things. So in looking for those some things, uh, unfortunately, the pathologist called us and said, look, we just, you know, we just got those blood samples and we looked at it and this looks like leukemia. And I said, oh, yeah, I was wondering. So um, we, she came, she was coming in for her report. We got all the stuff and I said, well, you know, here, here's, here's what it is. It's not just as simple as we thought. And this is why you feel this way, but you know, you have a lot of options here. And she was, her and her husband were obviously pretty stunned you know, and what was interesting, I didn't set it up this way. This is just how life is. Both Bob and her were kind of at this same point in life where they were about to retire. Uh, they had, you know, worked hard in their different professions and their, their mind was on not getting cancer. Their mind was on now, <clears throat> you know, I'm finally going to slow down and do all this stuff. Um, so it, that part really played into it too. It's sort of like this loss of you know, this potential that you maybe had. So um, she, though, just decided after kind of the shock workers off, and we, we talked a lot because she did decide to work with me and my crew and, and do, you know, stuff. And, and we worked with her oncologist and she, she was just all about it. But, you know, she plotted through it and it was rough going, you know, because you, you have this, um, this great sense of loss of potentially the rest of your life or parts of the rest of your life. And 
other things you might have been going to do that you're not going to do now or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and it was just remarkable to me to see how she fought her way kind of up from, you know, that big heavy hit you get in the beginning where you're just in disbelief and denial. And then you kind of go through and, you know, back and forth. And it, it really made a difference in her uh, quality of life, definitely. Um, now, <clears throat> obviously, there's a different length of life for Bob and Gia, not just probably because of that, they had different cancers, etc. But what I can say is, other people I've seen, and we mostly had, she was sort of unusual that we diagnosed her, because mostly we saw stage four advanced cancer patients. Uh, so I didn't see as many on the front end like her. But in our stage four cancer patients, the people who had decided, look, okay, it's here, I'm you know, I can either be in charge of my life or I can be a victim. Uh, my stage four cancer had probably gone away. Those people do better. They just do better quality of life, life-wise. And <clears throat> I think uh, length of life. And as I mentioned in the book, you know, there's, there's uh, actually recent, there's been research for a long time, there's recent research on empowerment, looking at, you know, hard endpoints like pain management you know, how much drug do you need to manage pain versus your level of feeling in charge of your health and your empowerment, um, quality of life things, you know, other stuff. And I, because outside the box was such a, a, a treatment oriented book, we had a lot of research in there. I tried to really minimize the research in this one, but I do have excerpts from recent, you know, studies that just show that this is not something that's totally just, you know, up here, people have looked at how does this make me you know, a better patient? How's it make my health better? How's it, you know, whatever. So, so that's kind of the, the trip for those two people. And I, I was hoping because my goal was to write this for either a person who is diagnosed with cancer and, or their loved ones and their caregivers, um, because you all go through the same shock. If it's your partner, your spouse, or, or just your friend, you're shocked too, when you get this diagnosis of your friend. So I really wanted it to be a quick read. I wanted it to be understandable, but I also realized most people, not everybody, but most people don't sit around thinking about, well, I wonder what it's like to have a cancer diagnosis. Like they don't really run that scenario in their mind. So they're pretty shocked. And I thought the stories of those two guys would be a nice way to tell it in sort of a human manner that would, you know, be less academic. So I, I think you hit your goals. I, and I totally could tell Like I was like, I know this guy could have written a lot more. I was surprised when I, when I was going to buy the book uh, again, how small it was. And I was like, this is so interesting. What's going to be inside. And, and yet it was, it was, it really stirred up a lot of thoughts and emotions and even me processing my own health history. Um, I actually have notes here from reading the book and I don't even, <laughs> this is so silly. I'm like, was this just me thinking, did you, did you end up talking about the five stages of grief in your book as well? Like even like brushing past it. Cause I have here that, is that a, yeah. 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 I, <clears throat> I used, I used that actually as a skeleton, okay. uh, for the, for the journey. Yes, and I did that's that because it. people are familiar with that. So while it's not exactly analogous, it's, it's very similar, you know? people do go through those stages. Um, but, but mostly I put it in the book because most people have heard of that and they can understand those, 
emotions. Yeah. yeah. I actually ended up writing. I'm like, why I'm looking at my notes from reading the book. And I just clearly was in the moment and didn't yeah. like write anything to myself. And I just have written here that I, I started writing out my own journey of the five stages of grief in my health journey and being like, did I actually go through this and, and really thinking through it. And I would recommend it to any of our listeners. If you, wherever you're at in your journey, sitting down, and if you're at all familiar, maybe as you're reading Dr. Paul's book or, um, or whatever, pull up the five stages of grief. I put down mine. I like have here denial was me just trying to fix my, my, my energy levels or my pain levels with diet. Just kind of be like, I don't have a thing. I don't have a thing going on. I just, I just need to eat differently. Okay. I mean, I did that for about a year and a half. And as things progressively got work worse, then there was anger. And for me, it was anger that my physicians couldn't help me anger that I wasn't listened to angered at myself because I really worried it was my fault. Like, oh my gosh, I I'm in my twenties. I must've majorly messed up to be, feel this bad at such a young age. Um, and I know that can answer, happen with any diagnosis, especially cancer. Like, uh, <laughs> um, you know, there was, there was some bargaining with myself, with physicians of like, if I just, you know, whatever, I think that I'm, I'm even a spiritual person. And so it's like faith-based, you know, God, what did I do? And what's going on here there? I think that goes on even with your family. It's just, that one wasn't as clear to me, but I was like, I think that there was emotional bargaining uh, inside. There was definitely grief, like in my clearest moment of grief for me. And I, and I realized I became aware of this a couple of years ago, but for our listeners, I mean, it might be help. I don't know if Dr. Anderson, if you have any thoughts on this, but like even identifying when key moments where we have grief and why. So for me, what had happened is I woke up in the middle of the night crying. And I have never done this before. I think that's something I'd seen on movies and in books, like the person wakes up and they're crying. Right. <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh no, I'm in a movie right now. I'm crying. And I woke up. It's never happened again. and had never happened before. And what had happened is I had had a dream that I was in college again, and I was eating my favorite breakfast, which in college was a bagel that was toasted with eggs and cream cheese. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds disgusting to some people, but I just loved it. And I was gluten-free at that point. I was low FODMAP. I was dairy-free. I could not eat any of, I mean, I could eat the eggs. That was about yeah. it. Yeah. And, and I was crying because I think I, and I didn't even allow myself on a day-to-day -day basis to think about how how sad I was that I had all these dietary restrictions and still felt horrible. And I was in pain that I think the pain actually woke me up. Um, yeah. and so that, that was really key. This like moment of like the grief actually really breaking through. And then I think my acceptance happened somewhere along the lines of like starting to have more doctor appointments and being like, okay, I've got this thing. I'm going to figure it out. I don't know what I'm going to find. I don't know how many more times I'm going to be ignored, <laughs> but, yeah, but yeah. right. <laughs> but, but learning how to enjoy foods that I could have, um, right. you know, like I'm actually still gluten-free and dairy-free. I'm actually grain-free due to a, having miscarried my first child and doing some extra testing. And I actually find that nowadays, instead of feeling, seeing all the foods I can't eat, I'm so excited. I can eat an apple, which I like couldn't eat in mm -hmm. my like sickest moment. I couldn't eat watermelon. I couldn't eat. And so it's like this acceptance 
in, interesting point. It doesn't happen all at once. And so anyways, I, I really appreciated how you staged that. And, and I'm sure, you know, all your limitations, you're right. It's not perfect. The cycle isn't step one, step two, step three, but I just to tell you from my standpoint, reading it, how it impacted me and for our listeners, it is a, I do recommend, I think it was really therapeutic or cathartic, um, for me to do that. So thank you, Dr. Anderson. Well, that's, that's awesome because the, you know, this book really almost everything in it can apply to anybody with a, a chronic illness that isn't cancer. And I almost wrote the book that way to be cancer and chronic illness, because there's so much overlap, but there, there is a, <clears throat> there's a perception if you have cancer or if you don't have cancer, but have a chronic illness, you know, that you kind of want your own look at the problem you know you don't want it to be too broad so the plan is maybe there would be a, a book about chronic illness specifically in the future because you know one of the things as you bring it up like you kind of grieve each thing in whatever order you go through it and it can be things like you know my diet had to change or my physical capacity is not what it was or whatever you know there's a million things it can be well, if, if you have a non-cancer chronic illness, one of the hardest things uh, that, that we deal with people around is often, <clears throat> you know, you might recover like a lot of your health and a lot of your well-being and a lot of function and everything. But for the most part, there will still be this thing that you have to tend to and, you know, and work on. And a lot of people, what they're grieving with chronic illness is not, I have, you know, like cancer and I may die from it. It's, I have a chronic illness that I won't die from, but it's going to mess my life up. And, and so in the, on the chronic illness side, a lot of it is you're actually grieving things that, you know, don't have an end point, you know, that you're, and also just the frustration of, gosh, I would really love to eat a bagel and, you know, and, and whatever, you know, I mean, right. any, anyone who significantly changed their diet and stuck to it for more than three days that knows that feeling, you know, that it's right. like, there's this memory that comes back. So, yeah. so I think, yeah, I think that's the, you know, the, the point of the book is there's, there is a pathway through it, but, you know, as we just like in life, as you sort of unearth one layer of things that you've been struggling with that are holding you back it gives you more energy than to deal with the other things that were, you know, kind of holding you back, which mirrors the physical process. Like as soon as somebody clears out something that was suppressive or messing with their health, they now have more energy to fight the things that maybe they weren't thinking about before. So it, you know, the mental and the physical really mirror each other. So yeah, it's, I, I'm, I, I'm glad you saw that. That's what I was going for in the book. So <laughs> yeah, I, that's actually really, but that's interesting what you said there about peeling away the layers. I'm, I'm, I'm actively aware of, and actually talk probably on the podcast, um, probably as in, I hope I have clearly stated this before. And I definitely talk about it with my clients that, you know, most of the time when you, 
when you've already tried all the normally healthy things and you're not getting better, something deeper is going on and we don't know what it is. And for a lot of people that I work with, it's mold and pathogens and parasites and heavy metals. And it's not cancer, but um, it's like all these things. And usually though, it's not just one thing because if it were, it'd be easy to kind of point, you know, you just flick your finger and it's gone and you feel better. And that happens to all the people who don't need to go to doctors like, and find and work really hard to find their health problem resolved. If you are working hard though, you probably got multiple things. So I talk about like, we're going to deal with, you know, it one at a time or two at a time, you're going to get energy. You're going to get inertia and then feel better. But I hadn't picked up on that theme in your book. I'm now I'm wondering if I just didn't read it well enough, but, but maybe just your intention of it. I like hearing that, that, uh, the emotional aspect of, dealing with that. And I've seen that in my own life doing counseling or doing mind body therapies. Um, and when you say that, I don't think I've ever quite thought of it on an emotional way of it's peeling back the layers and you get more energy to deal with the next emotion or the next emotion or the next deed, the task of getting Mm -hmm. up and taking a shower or going to your next appointment or whatever it is. Um, one question that I had here for you, is based off of a quote. So you actually quoted Viktor Frankl, who is a man who has suffered incredibly or who did suffer incredibly in concentration camps in World War II. And he wrote the book, Man's Search for Meaning, which is like a pretty well-known book. I feel like it's something that if you didn't know who who wrote it, it's like that title that you've heard of before. And in his book, you, you quote him in your book, uh, how he says that meaning comes from three pro- possible sources and meaning's key meaning having that meaning is how you go through suffering whether that's concentration camp or chronic illness or cancer and the three possible sources for meaning victor frankel says is purposeful work love and courage in the face of difficulty and these three are, are, you know, you could really sink your teeth into the idea of purposeful work doesn't even necessarily mean career. It could be taking care of my kids or, or gardening or helping provide food for somebody or or having relationship with my neighbors, or it doesn't always have to be like having, being a CEO of a company. But the one that really digs in for me is actually love. I felt like when I read those three, So I'm going to pick one for me that was hard or that I've thought about. I've seen my clients struggle with. Um, And I just feel like one with with love, it's either you're sick. You don't feel super lovable. Like you're not producing as much. You're you're having you're a drain on financial resources for your family or you don't have as much energy to clean around the house or like at least as a woman, I'm thinking about more so like how much I can cook and clean and, and maybe have a job. And for men, maybe they're thinking about other stuff and those as well. Um, so being loved is really hard, but then also loving other people because love takes energy first off. Um, also just wanting to love, wanting to be vulnerable when, when you're so, when you're like, maybe how long will I last or will I be present for this relationship? And so what I'm curious is, how can we be courageous with loving or being loved when we're in pain, when we're tired and when we have a diagnosis or just feel chronically sick? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really incredible um, path to go down. Um, I think like you say, you know, um, loving in both directions, but just from the point of view of the person who's unwell, takes a lot of energy 
you know, and it's not like negative energy, it just takes energy to be present and all those things. And if you couple that, and of course, you don't feel well, the energy is not always what you want it to be. If you couple that with the fact that unless you really open open that up, like you just described, and deal with the fact that love and the people who love you and you trying to love the people around you is maybe different when you are not completely healthy and well, not wrong, it's just different. Um, if you don't unpack that and kind of go through your own both grieving of that, but also becoming empowered around it, you will always carry this thing in the back of your mind that you're not as lovable as you, you know you you ought to be or as mm. you could be because yeah i'm tired all the time i don't feel well i'm in pain uh i have to go to you know the doctor a lot it costs money for all this stuff i'm doing whatever you know the list could go on and on and, and then that doesn't matter whether you're a chronically ill person or a person with cancer they have the same list there you know and it's like oh geez you know i'm yeah i'm i'm a great spouse because i you know, I, I'm half, I'm half time, you know, I'm able to do things or whatever. Um, and, I'll, you know, and I will say just, you know, just totally raw honesty, looking at all those years with both chronically ill and cancer patients, that is a, that is a real part of the struggle and the journey. And it, it goes one of two ways. If we break it down to say partners or spouses, um, most, I, I would hope anyway, I've not done statistics, but my impression is most partners who are, you know, in it together, the partner who is not chronically ill or doesn't have cancer just wants you to do the best you can and get better and, you know, all of that. And they really don't see it as, well, this is a partly lovable person I'm with or whatever. They just really want to be involved and help. And, you know, so there's a thing where the person who's not well uh, can withdraw and can feel unlovable. And there's, you know, all these, this list of things are not doing right. Most of the time, the other person, at least, you know, for as long as they can, that's not where they're at. You know, they may have things to work out around that, but that's not where they're at. Um, there are a group of people, which is very unfortunate, um, less in cancer, but it does happen, <clears throat> but certainly chronic illness where a chronic illness dissolves, you know, a marriage or a partnership or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's really unfortunate to watch. And normally there were things there before that, but the, you know, the, all of the things that go on around that, you know, create a problem. So I think that, you know, very analogous to this journey going towards being empowered with a bad diagnosis like cancer, et cetera, that's your, you know, that's your own journey as the patient to actually believe that you're worthy of being loved. You are a lovable person, uh, but also being realistic about <clears throat> this may be different three months from now, but right now I can do this much of what I normally do. And I'm going to do this really well, but I can't do all these things, you know, that I, that I maybe used to do. Right. Um, and you have to be really strong and uh you know a lot of empowerment is just seeing what's really there you know <clears throat> and you have to not be thinking i i can do all this like i can do 100 percent of what i used to do because that's not real right right um and and that's that's a lot of you know those of us who have chronic illness 
a lot of what pushes you to being chronically ill is uh, not looking at the reality of what you can't do. And eventually your body just says, well, <laughs> you're not listening. So here, have right. some pain or have yeah. some whatever, you know, so yeah. your body will take care of that at some point. But I think with respect to love and being loved, it, it is a lot of it just stepping back. And, and then, you know, the realistic part is if it's you and your spouse partner um, is having like a, just a brass tack conversation about that and saying, I can do this. Um, and I can, I can pull this off and not make myself sicker. And we all understand what's going on. You know, where are you with that? Like, is that like, how, how do you feel about that? And most of the time, you know, like I say, most of the time, the, the partners and spouses are, that's helpful to them because they say, oh, well, I didn't realize that, you know, maybe this would be a bad idea for you to do, you know, because you always used to do that. Um, so yeah, a lot of it is, you know, getting to empowerment is like each, it's like each little hill you climb individually. And I, I think you mentioned earlier, I, I don't overstate that in the book, because that is a little bit of a downer to think that you might have to climb a hill more than once. Uh, I do have a, uh, in the six okays in the middle of the book, uh, one of them is, is it's okay to start over, it's okay to recycle and all that stuff, which is normal. Um, but yeah, that that is a real thing. And um, I think that, you know, uh, that idea of, you know, purposeful work and love, et cetera, is those are such core things. And that's why, you know, I love what he, what he wrote, and why I put it in the book. Um, the love part, it, it has to start with you being able to love yourself how you are and not think, I wish I was this because, you know, we all wish we were something, you know, that we're not, um, but that's not helpful, you know? So I, I think that that's the place that it has to start. And then the rest is communication with, you know, those around you. But as you open up and realize, okay, I've got this right now to deal with, I'm going to be the best this I can whatever those limitations are, you, you naturally become more open and people are more likely to, you know, move closer to you as, as opposed to far away. Yeah. So. I love that. That's a great breakdown. Um, you know, step one, believing you're lovable and, and that and saying that, oh my gosh, saying that is easy. Doing it is hard or saying it is simple. The concept is simple, but doing it is hard. Um, one resource that came to mind that, um, I'm sure you're familiar with is any, any resource by Brene Brown, who is a researcher on shame. And the reason she's an expert on shame, she always says is because she was originally interested in, worthiness, like people who had this like wholehearted life is what she called. And then she, she found out, Oh, Hey, these wholehearted people feel that they're worthy. Uh, okay. Well, why do some people feel they're worthy, but some people don't, Oh, it's, it has to do with shame. It actually doesn't, the worthy people aren't smarter, wealthier, prettier, whatever. They have a different outlook. There's something different going on inside of them. And she eventually found out it was shame. And so she's technically a shame researcher and I've read two of her books, The Gifts of Imper Imperfection, which is actually another shorter book, really readable. So I would recommend it. We'll put a link in the show notes for that book, but Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. She really digs into like, what are some of the things going on if we don't feel lovable? And what are some of the things we can process and think through and, and work through? Because it is, it's a simple thing to say. I've worked through it. I'm still working through it. It is hard to do. And then, you know, but once you get to that point, once you can receive love, 
and you don't have what I call holes in your love bucket. <laughs> I, and maybe a counselor of mine told me that once. And I just started walking around and be like, I have holes in my love bucket. <laughs> um, but once you get those holes plugged up, then it does make it easier. And you can kind of stand up and you can focus on what you do have. Not all the things like if you're familiar with spoon theory, I love spoon theory. Do you know what that is, Dr. Anderson? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's um, it's amazing. And, and I came across it when I was depressed and in high school and, and I was like, oh, so instead of focusing on how many meals I can't make or how I can't do, I can't do these three things in one day, but I could do them one day at a time type thing. Um, then telling myself that now that I'm married, it's such a good thing. You learn more about yourself. You learn more about your spouse. You can actually be very health happy just by simply knowing you have boundaries and accepting that you have boundaries and being like, I'm still a valuable person and I still enjoy the things I enjoy. So I love how you broke that down. Um, one thing I want to ask you before we finish our call here, and this is something that, um, so my, I don't know if you would know this, my dad's a pediatric surgeon. So he, I talk with him all the time about health stuff and sciencey stuff. And one thing we've, I, I remember as little kids, like I was like five or eight and I would ask my daddy, like, why are so many people sick? <laughs> and, and eventually I got older and, and then my questions got a little bit smarter. You take a drink. You're, you're getting ready to talk. <laughs> no. Um, but, but I, one of the things I would start asking my dad and he's like, I'm not an expert. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm talking with an expert. I really want to ask you this question that I've, that I, so many people ask. So it's okay. They're, we're just expecting an amazing answer from you right now. Um, but the question is, what are some of the reasons you see that cancer is on the rise? Um, you know, one of the things I've, I, let me tell you my theories, and I'm sure you'll say it's probably a little bit of all of them, but, but please tell me if I'm wrong or if I miss something, you know, oh, we're living longer. So cancer just has more time to pop up or that's my dad's answer actually. Um, or like we're finding it, uh, we're finding it better than we did in previous centuries. Or, and then of course there's the whole lifestyle, like we're stressed, there's gas and smogs and toxins and non-organic foods, and we eat really weird diets and there's that whole aspect too. And those are kind of the three things I hear from people, but you've researched this, you've seen a lot of stuff. I would just be so curious what you would say to that question. Yeah, I, I, I do think to a degree it's, you know, all of those are true, you know, it's, um, it's it's easy uh, to humans want the simplest, most reductionistic answer to questions. And if if you deal with things like cancer or chronic illness, there's never a reductionistic answer to anything. Uh, so all of those things are very true. We we live longer. So statistically, you know, basically statistically, right now, if if you live long enough, you'll probably have cancer, right? Like that's, that's just the, it's like the carrot and the stick of being a human. Um, so that is true. Uh, also detection, we are better at detection. But one of the things that, so th those are true and they're a piece of the puzzle, but then you have to step back and look at um, uh, one of the, you know, I mean, I'm fortunate in one way, unfortunate in other ways areas I've done a lot with is uh, pediatric cancer, children who have cancer. Pediatric cancers have been on an extreme rise in the last 50 years of humanity. Uh, and one thing about pediatric cancers is they are 
usually have nothing to do with anything that the child did, you know, as far as their lifestyle or any other thing. This is right. sort of an endemic, you know, epigenetic problem that we're having as humans. Now, e even if you subtract the, um, the cancer hotspots that the CDC tracks around just the US, you know, where there's toxins that create like 40 times more of one cancer or whatever. And right. a lot of those are pediatric cancer. You subtract that, there's still a lot more children with cancer than we've ever seen. And that's certainly not because they're living longer. And kids who had cancer 100 years ago, you knew, they, like there was not a detection problem. So, so there's definitely other things afoot. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of the deeper answers to that question are things that people it's just things you don't want to think about. Hmm. Uh, and, and I, I am often, you know, the bearer of news that people don't want to think about, but you, you have the human race as human organisms are probably weaker than we have ever been as just physical specimens. Now we may have other you know, benefits. We have maybe better opportunities for nutrition. We certainly have better medicine to make us not die from things. And we got all these really great things. So that's good. But as a whole, we're probably actually weaker on, you know, on an epigenetic plane. And epigenetics are just everything that affects your body uh, in, in any way, positive, negative, and they tell your genetic code to work better or worse, right? So the effect of toxins is much larger than people really want to talk about. The effect of diet, and one of the things with diet is diet is so intimately connected with toxic things yes. uh, because, because food is the best way into our body for toxins, unless you're, you know, we breathe in toxins certainly, but like food is number, food and, and drink is number one, you know? So it, it's, it's all of those things. And then you know, the natural course of, uh, of anything over time is, you know, to find ways to do its work better. So, you know, cancer certainly has some things it can do now that it, it didn't probably, uh, it wasn't able to do before. So there's just a, you know, there's a thousand reasons why, but, you know, what comes, if you turn this around, because that can become a very dark and dreary sort of idea. You know, it's, and a lot of those things are the same reason that we have so much chronic illness too. Um, th th that's right. a longer discussion, but so that can become so negative. And I've had this happen to me where you just, you just want to give up. It's like, well, if it's that bad, you know, you know, heck with it. Um, but the thing that I think that the book tries to get at, at least conceptually and, and what I try to do with people is, okay, so that's all real, you know, Part of empowerment is seeing reality, but let's look at that problem from the other side, you know, which is really from you inside out, because those are all big external things. And, and the you inside out is saying, okay, that's real. I may be, my illness may be participating in some of those things, not all of them. So what, what do I have control over? What can I change? I can't make myself in a non-toxic world. 
that world doesn't exist. <laughs> but I can I cannot you know I cannot exacerbate the problem by bringing more toxins into my body than I ought to. I can do everything I can to have clean water and and the cleanest food I can find and all you know nothing's perfect but all that. But every little bit helps. I can do things like doing my very best to you know, uh, have good sleep wake cycles and sleep enough. So my immune system has a chance to reboot. I can do things to face, you know, my mental emotional issues that everybody has and not suppress them so that I don't have this anchor pulling me back all the time, you know, whether it's shame or, or whatever is deep in there. Uh, those are, those are, those affect your health, you know? So, Although it's easier to objectify why people are sicker and why there's more cancer, and there's a lot of bad reasons, the hard part is to turn around and say, hey, all right, that's, that's all possible, but I've got my body and my life for however long I'm here. What can I do today and in the following days that would make me a smaller target for those things? And also, if I know I've got trouble, you know, for instance, I, I have some toxic exposure, um, or I've, I, you know, I need to lose some weight or whatever it is that you're doing, or I need to change my diet or I need to whatever. Uh, what can I do about that to kind of get on the train to, you know, doing that positively and just, you know, like you said earlier, just pick one thing and let's do that. And, and then you'll, you know, you, that gets easier and then you can identify other things that you can start to do differently. And that, I think that's where really the, um, it's hard to do that in the beginning because now you're not talking about external things that are in the world. You're talking about you and what can I do to control this? You know, cause I, right, I have, right. uh, I have a lot of friends, you know, who, who are doctors. I also have a lot of friends who uh, are not at all in the healthcare world. And a lot of them just get really sort of depressed and dejected about things like toxicity and, and uh, you know, diet and, and all these things. Cause they just overwhelm me, you know? And it's like, it's easier to say that ah, yeah, I'm going to die anyway. Let's not worry about it. Um, that's probably not the best long-term strategy though. So, so I, I do think it's, you know, the reason people are getting more cancer is, is all of the above. Um, and uh, unfortunately those environmental things are never going to go away. So what we have to do is find ways to just minimize their impact on us and our loved ones and everybody. Um, some of the things like things you can do for yourself, like more physical activity and, you know, in, in limiting the amount of toxic stuff that goes in you, all that stuff, do the best you can, you know, and that doesn't mean you're not going to encounter chronic illness or cancer, but make yourself as tiny a target as possible. Yeah. I love that. And, and thank you for breaking that down in that way of, you know, being honest with your answer. I prefer and I hope our listeners do. I think our listeners, they're, they're looking for answers and they, they want honesty. So I thank you for even sharing us, even if it's ugly news, but also the grounding, the response of that can be an answer to a big question, but practically what does that mean and how do we respond? And one thing I even like to remind myself, let alone my clients is our bodies have actually been designed to handle toxins. Like Hey, the liver, like, like, and, and plenty of other organs in our body and, and the way that it functions, it's like it, the body understands the way that the body was designed. It understands that 
oh, I'm going to get come into contact with toxins. We just need to deal with them. And so it's what can we do to reduce how many we're being exposed to and then increase how well we get rid of them. And, um, and, that, and then there's practical things you can do there. So thank you so much. And, and thank you for coming on to the Better Valley podcast. I don't, I didn't mention this at the beginning to you, but we've only ever had on one other only had a, one other podcast episode with a guy. So we, oh. yeah, I know you're our second, second guy ever. So you're extra special. So thank you so wow. much. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, thank you. That's, uh, that's, that's good. To, I'll put that on my list of, you know, first or seconds, right? First or second. Uh, uh, so I will, um, I will send you information uh, about the new book, uh, our our publisher has a, 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 a special. I've signed a whole bunch of books and people can get a signed hard cover through a particular uh, ordering site. Um, you can certainly get it any, it, it, we did this every way you can. So it's an audio book on all platforms. It's Kindle and e-readers. And then of course, uh, regular old book books. So yeah. And we're going to put a link in the show notes so people can get connected with you. They can buy your book. They can follow you. You've got a great YouTube um, presence, Instagram. And so we are going to make sure that people can get in contact with you and share those in our show notes. Thank you. Awesome. Wow, was that amazing or what? It was so awesome to have Dr. Anderson come onto the podcast. And I hope that from this conversation, you got something to take away. I also hope that you have been inspired and intrigued to read Dr. Anderson's new book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. Like I said, I read it. It was a great read. It was, as Dr. Anderson said, quick on the shorter side, but still super, super powerful and healing to the emotions and to the mind. So if you want to connect further with Dr. Anderson, you can check him out on his website, www.dranow.com. He's also on YouTube, on Instagram at Dr. A Online, and Facebook, Dr. A Online, and Twitter at Dr. Paul Anderson One. That might be a lot. So we do have the links in the show notes so you can check him out and follow him wherever you like to follow people. We also do have a link to Dr. Anderson's new book, Cancer Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you, like I said, and like I always say, if you thought of somebody, if if you wanted to, if you were just touched by this episode and you want to share it with other people, just take a quick screenshot and send it to your friend or post it just on your Instagram stories. Tag us, Better Belly Therapies. Tag Dr. Paul at Dr. A Online. And we would love to hear what you took away or just the fact that you listened and you were encouraged. I would love to connect with you on Instagram and see more of you there. In other words, I will leave you guys off with our motto. Miracles are immediate, but healing takes time. Catch you next time.